Well, keep your Bibles open to John 6. Uh, You'll see that the chapter is quite long, and uh, 71 verses total, that's a lot of content, and it is amazing content. It is deep and relevant content, and so this chapter is magnificent, and I hope to help you see that. We're only going to handle a a couple verses, so this could all just be one long sermon for the next bunch bunch of weeks. Um, We all make important decisions every day, and behind our choices are motives, We make choices based on what we think is best for us and what will satisfy us. Paul said in Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. But therein lies our struggle. Often our choices are made from earthly motives. We work hard for earthly things, and hard work is necessary. Hard work is good, But a lot of it is Ecclesiastes 6, 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Much of what we work really hard for will not satisfy us, whether it's money or approval or whatever it is. And at the end of the day, many choices that we make are completely trivial. But Jesus teaches us a different way to live, a way that really counts. Not only that, it counts forever. It lasts forever. As you enter into, and I've never been there, but maybe you have, but as you enter into the Auschwitz Nazi prison camp, there hangs a slogan above the entrance. Arbeit macht frei, or work makes free. What we're going to see today, that's not what pleases God. Work is not the road to freedom, but something else is. So let's get to work. The mysterious disappearance of Jesus. The mysterious disappearance of Jesus. Verse 22 through 23. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Verse 23, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. The crowd noticed that there was only one boat docked and that the disciples left on that boat without Jesus. And verse 24 tells us that they also noticed that Jesus was no longer around. He was gone. What's going on? Where's Jesus? Elvis had left the building. All right, do you know where that's saying comes from? Uh, December 15th, 1956, Elvis performed on the Louisiana Hayride radio show for 10,000 screaming fans, mostly teenagers, and it was, the last, it was his last appearance on that radio program. Well, when Elvis finished, the teenagers start filing towards the exits. They're getting up, thousands of people getting up and, and filing out, but there were still more musical acts to come on after Elvis. And so at that point, Horace Lee Logan, the founder and producer of Louisiana Hayride, jumped up and said, all right, Elvis has left the building. I've told you absolutely straight up to this point. You know that he has left the building. He left the stage and went out the back with the policeman, and he is now gone from the building. And he ended up saying this to the teenagers, we'd be very pleased to have you remain with us. I thought that was kind of funny. Elvis has left the building. It started out as a a desperate attempt to get 
thousands of teenagers back in their seats to hear the rest of the show. But then ironically, through the years, and they used this at Elvis uh, concerts, it ended up meaning, go home, the show is over. There's no more to see here. Jesus had left the Golan Heights. There's nothing else to see. Move along. No more miracles here today. The show's over. The curtain has fallen. But the crowd couldn't make sense of it. How did Jesus vanish? Where did he go? When did he leave? So across the lake they went to Capernaum in boats that arrived from Tiberias. Off to see the wizard, so to speak. There are idolatrous and evil reasons to follow Jesus. There are idolatrous and evil reasons to follow Jesus. Verse 24 says, So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. They didn't go home. They went looking for Jesus. More time, more energy, more traveling, perhaps more money to get there. They were drawn to Jesus for some reason. Verse 25 tells us, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? In other words, how in the world did you get here? This makes no sense to us. One boat, disciples get into that boat, disciples leave without Jesus, no other boats are available, and you're on the other side of of the lake. When did you get here? How did you cross the lake? That's what's behind their question. Now, two questions are helpful at this point. Number one, why didn't Jesus answer their question? And number two, why was the crowd seeking Jesus? So here's what they ask again. Verse 25, Rabbi, when did you come here? And we'd expect Jesus to say something like, oh, you didn't see? You didn't notice? I walked across the water and I got into the boat with the guys and I came last night. But Jesus didn't say that. This is what he said, verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Whoa. We didn't ask you to dig in there and to expose our motives. We ask you another question. First question, why didn't Jesus answer their question? Because there is something that he knows about their hearts, about the way that they sought him, that Jesus wanted to address. They were already salivating for miracles, so a direct answer to the question, well, I just up and walked across the lake, uh, would have fed their desires for miracles. Instead, Jesus exposes their sin. He was digging into why they are seeking him. So why was the crowd seeking Jesus? Now understand, now in the NIV, you're not going to see this. I, I prefer the ESV for a bunch of reasons, but here's one of them. It's actually truly, truly, amen, amen. He's saying truly, truly. And whenever he says that, it's adding emphasis to what he's about ready to say. Also, Jesus acknowledged that the crowd was seeking him. They chose to follow him for some reason. Behind their seeking Jesus came a motive. And that's what Jesus was getting at. Then he gives one reason they are not seeking him. Because they saw signs. Because they saw signs. That should cause us to pause. Because if our memories are good, 
weren't they seeking Him precisely because they saw the signs and miracles? That's a good question, but you have to keep going. Look back to verse 2 in chapter 6. It says this, And a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. It's basically the same crowd. But Jesus just said in verse 26 later on that they were not following him because of the signs. What did Jesus mean? Well, we need to understand what the purpose of a sign is. A sign directs people to a destination. It points beyond itself to something greater. If people never move beyond the sign, two things happen. One, they settle for the sign. And two, they never get to the final greater destination beyond the sign. Now imagine that you're heading to New York City on a day trip. Love New York City. Lost to see there. Wouldn't want to live there, but love it. Um, so you're heading there and you see this blinking sign saying New York City, 60 miles. And so you slam on the brakes and you kick it in reverse and you're weaving through traffic as you go back at the risk of your life and you, you hit the brakes again, you slam it in the park and you stare at the blinking sign. That's ridiculous. And you never move beyond looking at the sign. You're fascinated with the sign. Now, you don't want to settle for staring at that dumb sign all day. No matter how fancy the sign is or how nice the blinking lights are. You want to get past the sign to go see Rockefeller Center. Or to go go see the 9-11 Memorial or Times Square. The blinking sign as impressive as it may be, is not the goal. It's not the end. All right? And a fascination with the sign could prevent you from seeing something greater beyond the sign. See, verse 2 highlights the wrong way to see signs and follow Jesus. And in verse 26, Jesus referred to the right way to follow him. Let's look at the wrong way. The wrong way to see signs and follow Jesus is to follow him for the sign itself. In verse 2, Jesus healed the sick and the crowd followed him for their own selfish benefit. And if you go back to John 2, 23 through 25, you'll see essentially the same thing. A fascination with signs, with miracles, with the supernatural, not true saving faith in Christ. Nicodemus was similar in John 3 along with the official in John 4. And what I want you to see today is that plenty of people believe in the power of Jesus, in the accomplishments of Jesus. People love to see miracles, but not because they love Jesus. What they want to get most is not God himself. That's the wrong way to follow Jesus, and it's really not following him at all. A few more scriptures to make the point. Psalm 106, 12 recounts how Israel responded when God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. It says, then they believed his words, they sang his praise. That's great. But listen to what happens in the next two verses. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. God liberated them brought them out of Egypt, freed them from slavery, and they forget him. They put him to the side. 
theists are still doing this. We have spiritual amnesia of what God has done in our lives and what he's done in history. Jesus may be impressive, but he's easy to forget in the hot pursuit of our earthly pleasures, our earthly desires. Ezekiel thirty-three thirty-one. And they came to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say. That sounds great. That's amazing. People came to Ezekiel the prophet and listened to what God said through him as his prophet. Sounds like church. God speaking through the preacher to you. But here's how the verse continues. But they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And that's exactly what's happening in John 6. People came, people listened to Jesus, but refused to do what he taught, namely to believe in him. Instead, their heart was set on their personal and material gain. How about Philippians 3.19? Talking about the enemies of the cross, Paul said, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Isn't that John 6? Hungry people seeking more food from Jesus? You see, appetites can quickly evolve into gods for us. James 4.3 is the same thing. People are praying to God so that their passions could be satisfied. James called that adultery. You adulterous people, he says in the next, word, in the next verse. Now, why adultery? Why that imagery? Because anyone who comes to God for the purpose of having their carnal desires satisfied, cheats on God with the lover of worldliness. They don't come to God to get God. They come to get something else. These passages help expose the wrong way to see signs and wonders and supernatural power and to follow Jesus. That is essentially verse 2 and why the crowd followed Jesus across to Capernaum. They wanted something from him. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 26 when he says, you are seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. You were satisfied. You were filled They followed Jesus because he miraculously gave them food. Imagine the benefit of a king who can give you and supply the nation of Israel unlimited bread. That's an amazing gift. That's a king. Unrivaled. Jesus was not their motive. That's the wrong way to follow Jesus. That's idolatry. It's loving Jesus because he can give you what you want, not what you need. When Jesus said in verse 26, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. He means something different than verse 2. He's going in a different direction. In verse 26, he's talking about the right way to follow Jesus, the right way to seek him because of signs. Signs are intended to point to a greater destination, right? His miracles were meant to point to him as the bread of life the Son of God and Savior who possesses the power to save from sin and God's wrath. So to follow Jesus rightly is to look at His signs and follow them to the final destination of faith in Him as Savior, Lord, and treasure. The right way to follow Jesus is to seek Him 
not what he gives you. Don't value the blinking light that points you to New York City. Value New York City. They wanted a king, but they wanted the wrong kind of king. They wanted a savior, but they wanted the wrong kind of savior. They saw signs, but they didn't see them the right way. One writer put it like this. Instead of seeing in the bread the sign, they see in the sign only the bread. The bread on the hill pointed to Jesus, not a satisfied appetite. Ask yourself this question. Why is Jesus important to me? Ask that of yourself. Why is Jesus important to me? Why do I do this church thing? Why do I do this devotions thing? Why do I do this morality thing? Why live differently than the world? Why even do that when it's so hard? Why commit to that? If it's anything other than Jesus, the safety of your kids, the success in your job, your reputation, whatever, fill in the blank, then you don't desire Jesus, you simply desire what Jesus can give you. Do you understand how dangerous that is? It's not saving faith, it's idolatry. What happens when you value anything more than Jesus and Jesus takes away what you love the most? You become bitter and you abandon Jesus. We'll see that in a few weeks. How could you trust Jesus if he doesn't give you everything that you want? How can you love a God that would take from you your most precious thing, the thing that you're like, anything God but this, and he takes it away? How can you serve a God like that? But therein lies the problem. Something other than God is most precious to you then. What God is telling you is that there is only one thing sufficient to satisfy your deepest need and therefore make you most happy. God is himself his son his spirit in you to delight in forever never to be taken cannot be taken god is the most precious thing so to value anything else more would be to miss out altogether when you follow jesus because you want jesus most when all else fails you are able to say amidst the loss i have everything because i have him at some point in this narrative of John 6, the setting transitions into the synagogue in Capernaum. What Jesus begins to teach in verse 27 has the power to revolutionize your life, to give you just a totally different perspective. And we'll, we'll be looking at his provocative teaching for the weeks to come. But here is where Jesus begins. There is a way to work hard your entire life and have it count for absolutely nothing. And there is a way to work hard your entire life and have it count for eternity. One way is a waste. The other way lasts through eternity. Now, children. We've got a couple children in here. I want you to listen close. If you're under the age of, of 16, all of us should listen, but even children should because this passage could change your entire future. Okay, you, your desires for life 
as a little kid should come from what Jesus is about ready to teach. So I want you to listen, children. Jesus taught this, verse 27, do not labor for food that perishes. You know how bread gets stale if you let it out and, or a meal? If you let the milk on the counter for four weeks, it's not going to taste very good. It's going to come out cheese. Mmm, I'll drink cheese. Um, no, don't try that. Uh, this is what he says, but for the food, so labor for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. So children, there's something to labor for that's more important than the food that you're gonna eat. Because guess what the world is telling you, little kids? You work hard your whole life so that you can get ahead. You can go to college. You can get a good education so you can get a good job and get a good trust fund or whatever. Don't buy into the lie. There's something else out there that endures to eternal life, children. Now, is Jesus suggesting that we quit our jobs and mooch off the government or other people? Jesus can't mean that. He cannot mean that. Start in Genesis 1 and trace the theme of hard work through the Bible, and you'll see that God is very pleased with hard work. Jesus himself worked really, really hard. He was a carpenter. I think he had calluses on his hands. He was able to pick up, you know, wood and rocks and and stuff. And so um, Jesus worked really hard, and his ministry... What Jesus means in verse 27 is do not make the labor for food that perishes the main focus and pursuit of your life. There is a superior focus and pursuit. Work hard, grow up to provide for your family, but never at the expense of the greater pursuit of food that endures to eternal life that is given to you by the Son of Man. How can you work your entire life, work really hard, and have it count for absolutely nothing? Here's how. It's not very hard. Tons of people do it, and you see it all the time. Here's how you do it. Ignore verse 27 and work hard your entire life with the focus on this life. Step one of completely wasting your life is to make it your ambition to gain as much as you possibly can from this life. That's it. All the hours and overtime, the savings, the sales, the trips, the tips, the games, the gas, all of it will count for absolutely nothing if our primary focus was the food that perishes. But there's another incredibly satisfying way to live. It's so exciting. I want to do this with my life. How can we work hard our entire life and have it count for eternity? Here's how. Live the second half of verse 27. Labor for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Now, what does that mean? He's kind of veiled in what he's saying, so we need to understand what Jesus means. And maybe you're asking what the crowd was asking at this moment in verse 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, what must we do to please God? They misunderstood Jesus. How? Here's what Jesus is not saying in the second half of verse 27. When Jesus used the word labor or work, he did not mean works righteousness or law works or working hard to obey God so you can earn eternal life work. Notice Jesus said the food that endures to eternal life is given by the Son of Man. That's grace. 
Jesus taught that eternal life is a gift from God. Look at John 3, 5 through 8, or the rest of John 6, particularly verses 37, 44, and 65. Read anything that Paul wrote, and you will see that salvation is not by works. It's by grace. 100% unmerited gift from God. Works, our works have nothing to do with it. That's not how we're justified. Just read Paul. What the crowd means by works of God in verse 28 is doing what God requires of us. They are essentially asking the question, what must we do to please God and be acceptable in his sight? What must we do to please God and be acceptable in his sight? And in their question is the assumption that they are able to do what God requires of them. Have they so quickly forgotten that God requires of them complete perfection? No misstep, none at all. 100% holiness all the time. That's what God requires. They're similar to the rich young man, if you remember the story, who asked Jesus, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Not gift, paycheck. That's what he was thinking, paycheck. What must I do? How can I earn? And this is the cardinal sin of humanity, believing that we don't need Jesus, but we can work it out on our own. That kind of work doesn't make free. It makes slaves. Any religious system built on our moral aptitude or effort is not only antithetical to the gospel, but is spiritually oppressive and leads to death. Do not understand Jesus in verse 27 as teaching spiritual arbeit mocked fray. He's not teaching that. What is Jesus saying in verse 27? Jesus explains what he means two verses later, really in the rest of the chapter. Jesus answered them, verse 29, this is the work of God, In other words, this is what pleases God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Faith, trust, belief. In other words, what pleases God and makes you acceptable in his sight is faith in Jesus Christ. Belief in Jesus makes free. Salvation was accomplished not by what you have done, but what Christ has done. And that's why salvation is by grace through faith. It's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's Romans chapter 3 through 5. It's Romans 10, 10. It's Galatians chapter 2 and 3. It's the entire New Testament. What God requires of us is to admit that we can't earn his favor by anything we do, but that Jesus can and has And that by believing in Jesus, we are credited with the righteousness of Christ. To do the work of God is to believe in Jesus Christ. God requires faith. Jesus does say to labor for food. And so we're like, but he said labor. He said work. But he's about to say in the coming verses that he is the food. That, that he is the bread of life and that he came to them. He gives himself to them. To believe is to feast on Jesus, the all-satisfying food, 
of eternal life. Don't miss the last part of verse 27. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. That that is awesome. God the Father fully and officially endorses his son as the sole provider of eternal life and satisfaction for his people. God has authorized Jesus as the food that endures to eternal life. The requirement of faith permeates the gospel of John. John 3.15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. John 3.36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Now notice in that verse, in John 3.36, belief parallels obedience. And I think in that sense, they are interchangeable of how John is, is using it. Faith, obedience, together and linked. John 5.24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And we could keep going in John. He's not even done making the point. And someone is sure to ask this question, but isn't believing work? Aren't we the ones exercising our faith in Christ? It's true that faith is an action carried out by us, but it's not a meritorious work because the only way we can believe is if God gives us the gift of faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So that's how he dispensed grace. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Faith. What is the gift of God? Grace. It's all coming from the hand of God. And he says in verse 9, just to make sure that we understand him, not a result of works, so that no one may boast because if we do it or contribute to it guess who gets a little bit of the credit we do and that dishonors God and it dishonors all of scripture we can't brag about our faith as a work because God gave it to us as a gift and faith cannot be a meritorious work because Romans 3 28 says for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Faith cannot be a work of the law or grace dies. Romans 4, 4 says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, you work for a paycheck. Thank God for that paycheck, right? Verse five, and to the one who does not work but trusts, trusts him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Right here in Romans 4.4, trust or faith is contrasted with works. Faith is not a work. It's not meritorious. It's a gift that God gives. The gift of faith is how God gives you and grants you the righteousness of Christ that you need to be counted as righteous in his sight. It's all about Jesus. This is why Jesus is so amazing. Faith pleases God. Everything we do is sheer grace. Everything, even belief, is grace. 
upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. Paul wrote in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Are you willing and working? You better believe You will things, you work things, but why do you will and work what you do? It's because God is working his grace in you. That's why you will and work. So let's wrap it up with an illustration that I read that gets at the heart of what Jesus is saying. And and I'm gonna expand the illustration that I read a little bit. This church used to be called, anyone know? Lots of different names. It's changed through the years. But one of the things, the original name was White Oak Reformed Church. White Oak. Now, I still have yet to understand why, because I'm guessing this was an area built up with a lot of white oaks. I'm not sure, but I'm guessing that. Now, white oaks are typically around 65 to 85 feet tall, and many times white oaks are as wide as they are tall, which I think is just phenomenal. What a tree. As a seedling, the white oak will produce what's called a taproot, and that taproot Uh, will work its way down through the soil to find water. And eventually, it disappears when a greater root system is developed to draw waters and minerals through the the roots to um, give life to the tree, to sustain the tree. The taproot does considerable work to drive down into the soil, but it never produces the water or the minerals it needs to live. The taproot only receives the water and the minerals given to it by something outside. Similar to this, faith is simply receiving the merits of Christ. That's it. Faith receives the righteousness and the merits of Jesus Christ. That makes us Counted as righteous in the eyes of God. Justified. Free. Do not work for the food that perishes. Arbeit nicht frei machen. Work does not make free. Do not follow Jesus because of the blessings he gives you. See the miraculous signs and power of Jesus and follow him because he gives you himself. Focus your entire life on living as the white oak. Strong and beautiful and noble and just sucking strength from the righteousness of Christ by grace, just taking it in, receiving from our king. That's a noble tree. That's a strong tree because the food that gives life only comes from Jesus What God requires of you, what pleases him the most is receiving his grace and believing his son. And I want to make sure to make this last point. From that faith that God gives to you will absolutely come the fruit of hard work for the glory of God. A a good harvest of fruit For God will come from the heart of faith. So believe, believe, trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for all that you have given to us. And I pray that we would love Jesus Christ most 
because it's not what we contribute. We don't contribute anything. All that we have to do and give is grace that comes after regeneration, after God gives us the gift of faith. And then we live for you because of your grace in us. So God, I pray that we would not be like we are prone to be, to chase after you because of gifts you give to us, but instead that we would come to you to get God and that you would be most precious to us and that we would just bask in the glory of your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.